This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Hello, I'm Rich Fields, and welcome to The Exchange from Reuters Breaking News. I'm here with Taima Hyatt. Taima is Chief Operating Officer of PGIM, the investment management business of Prudential Financial. PGIM has some $1.4 trillion of assets under management in fixed income and the full range of other asset classes. We're going to talk about big trends for investors, particularly as they relate to the ongoing pandemic, but also the US election and other factors. Taima, thanks for coming on. Richard, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, Timer, you and your colleagues make a point of thinking about megatrends, that's what you call them, that shape the investment landscape across different asset classes. We at Breaking Views have written quite a bit about how 2020's pandemic experience has accelerated shifts that were already happening in, say, technology, COVID-19, has caused rethinks in other areas like supply chains. Now we seem to have the possibility of some quite good vaccines but some changes are probably here to stay. Maybe you could give us the highlights of your thinking on how investors uh, should be adjusting what they're doing. Yes, I think long-term investors have been going down two tracks. One, clearly there's lots of volatility in markets, both geopolitical and pandemic driven. And there's lots to understand in terms of tactically what will be the shape of the recovery, how long will it take, There's a whole alphabet super vocabulary around that. We've been trying to dwell on the mega trends around what will the world look like after the great lockdown is over, after there are vaccines that are kind of reasonably broadly distributed around the world. And and we think there's a whole range of things that will be quite different in that post-vaccine, post-lockdown world, Richard. And we spent a bunch of time on that. And we're talking about, well, now it seems like we're probably talking about 2022 as 20 end of 21 into 22, 23, when when we really have that situation again. I mean, you, you talk about a few things in some of your white papers, supply chains just in time, intangible assets, some other things. I mean, what are the, the, the biggest ones of those? Maybe just to kick off the conversation, I'll, I'll, I'll hit upon three. And I think some of these are already beginning to happen in 2021, even if we have kind of, you know, full, full return to the new normal in 2022. The first is just we think the cost of doing business is going to go up for companies. And that's because supply chains, we believe, will bifurcate in one of two directions. Either they will become multi-locational with some degree of overlap. So you're not just in China, but countries like Bangladesh or Vietnam or countries in Eastern Europe or, or, or Mexico will benefit because of that desire to not just be concentrated in China. There were lots of uh, reasons why that was happening anyway with the trade tensions and rising labor costs in China. This has accelerated that. 
uh, but it will be a more expensive model. And side by side, we do think uh, whether it's because of nativism or automation or the desire to have more control over supply chains in critical areas, more supply chains will come back to home markets. Even if it's a little bit more expensive, you want your key suppliers, your key providers not to be 6,000 miles away, but maybe 300 miles away for example, medical equipment. And both those will raise the right. costs of supply chains. And the real question I think, Richard, for investors is, will markets value that extra resiliency by having just in case inventories rather than just in time right. inventories, having a better supply chain? Will they value it or will they penalize those companies because their ROEs, their returns on equity will go down? It's that problem of valuing a black swan event, right? More, more, more or less. It's that problem of, yes, how much resiliency do you want for, for these? Perhaps increasingly likely when you talk about climate change, and we can come back to that black swan event. Our current view is that debt investors, for sure, and equity investors quite likely, within a range of industries, actually value more robustness and resilience in companies rather than the headlong rush to very thin inventories and the cheapest possible supply chain. Okay, so that's one. I think you said you had three. Do you want to just touch on the other two and then maybe we can come back to that one? The second one is an accelerant of the trends towards technology and intangible assets, not just in Silicon Valley, not just in the technology sector, but pretty much across every company in all the sectors that investors invest in. And a couple of manifestations of that, for example, might be in the real estate world where we see physical retail shops continuing to decline, but the distribution and logistics centers used by the Alibabas and Amazons of the world grow. Right. But it also reflects itself in streaming media, in e-gaming, in all the tools that we are all now using for remote working and connecting with our colleagues and friends. So there's a range of kind of technology accelerants, which, which is a pretty powerful trend. And with that, the continuing rise of companies that use data, intellectual property, intangible assets and technology to drive their growth rather than the old bricks and mortar world. And then third, uh, Richard, after every big event in the world, there's always a regulatory reaction. Uh, yep. whether it was the global financial crisis uh, and the Dodd-Frank Act, the anti-terrorism legislations after 9-11. And we do believe that this won't be any different. There'll be a whole wave of legislation that will come, whether it is regulation on the tech sector or whether it's regulation on the medical sector, there will be some. The one sector that I think might escape is the financial services sector because that was so heavily regulated in the G8 after the financial crisis we think there's less room to run there. But these other sectors, I think, will face a bit of a reckoning. Right. I'd love to come back to all of those. I guess the other thing about finance is it's not, it wasn't their fault this time. This um, time it wasn't, <laughs> absolutely. Um, let's, let's just, before we come back to some of those great, I particularly love the, the intangible assets thing, the tech and the weightless, the idea of the weightless corporation. I'm fascinated by that. We'll come back to that. I did want to touch, since it was just um, a couple of weeks ago, on. Joe Biden's election as the next president of the United States and the extent to which that changes any of this or, or how you how it might nudge some of the curves you're talking about or whether it changes a sector focus at all for you. 
Well, if you go with the base case assumption that you're reading many of the pollsters, mind you, they've been wrong, uh, you know, more often than they've been right recently, and you don't get the blue wave, and instead you sort of get a, a murky violet of, uh, of a Senate-controlled, uh, Republican-controlled Senate uh, and, and Biden in the White House, then I think some of the more kind of extreme bets you could make on what a blue wave would look like go away. But nevertheless, I think there are a couple of things we can say. We may not get a two, three trillion dollar fiscal stimulus, but it's extremely likely that we'll get a one trillion dollar plus fiscal stimulus through through the through the houses. And that probably means it's a good time for risk on assets and it will provide support in 2020 for kind of markets to continue to be quite buoyant. We do think that there will still be a pro-green, pro-renewable energy agenda, obviously not as easy and as revolutionary as it might have been in different circumstances with the blue wave, but very much kind of a bit of a headwind for the fossil fuel industry and a bit of a leg up for renewables. And I think that uh, transfers into infrastructure as well. And infrastructure projects, particularly those that have a green angle to them, uh, will, will do well. Consumer staples, uh, I think, again, because of the fiscal stimulus and its size and the fact that I think some of the medium term measures that Biden was thinking of will probably be stimmied by the by the Senate. Uh, but I still think uh, that many of the near term employment benefits and other extensions will happen in our base case. And right. therefore, that's that's probably positive for, for consumer staples. And, and finally, I, I do think municipalities and state governments that have been struggling a bit with the weight of uh, unemployment in various states in the U.S., uh, with the cost of you know, providing care, will get more support than they might have otherwise. And right. that might be positive for, for some munis as well. Yeah, that's all interesting, isn't it? And it's all the question of how, whether Biden's career in Washington enables him to work better successfully with what's likely to be a Republican Senate, as you say, and whether those Republicans are willing to work with him, I guess. Um, How does it pan out, do you think? Does it change the picture? I mean, a couple that we write about a lot. One is uh, technology, the antitrust matters that are already ongoing with Google and so on, um, but other forms of, uh, you you mentioned the regulatory backlash. I mean, it seemed like it was coming anyway, regardless of who won the election, but do you think it changes that? So, so on what we call tech clash, um, you know, which is clearly a broader phenomenon given everything that's happening in the U- EU with GDPR and, and so on. But in the US, we think uh, the regulatory pressure will remain and maybe it transitions a little bit from the focus on the freedom to express yourself on social media to what are some of the kind of overreach that these uh, large technology giants are doing. And, and comes back to the underlying question that, you know, there are natural economies of scale when you're running intangible right. businesses with data at the heart. But are some of these big companies using that natural monopoly advantage and extending beyond where the free market would allow you by building a bit of a moat around their businesses that makes it impenetrable for other people to enter? And I think there's a fair amount of both academic and policy data that suggests that there is probably overreach and the industry hasn't self-regulated. And I don't think the pressure on, on the tech giants will change under, under a democratic uh, administration. I will say the one chance for the tech industry is to prove themselves with these trackings and taggings and their support during the pandemic to change the public's image around what right. they do. Hasn't made much of a dent in the US, but there's still time. Right. And then meanwhile, 
perhaps about COVID, but certainly about the election, you've had lots of people complaining from all sides about the Facebooks of the world and Twitter and all the rest of it and how they police or don't police or whether their policing of information is fair and so on. So that's a whole another element of that. Right. And, and, and I think the other element we shouldn't forget about is kind of foreign policy and what that means for investors. Uh, right. I do think this is probably not going to be uh, positive for, for Russia. Our base case is that the pressure on the Chinese uh, will remain. And the only difference might be that uh, Biden tries to create more of an EU coalition and maybe move it a little bit for, from tit to tat trade uh, numbers that people are trying to hit to a little more focus on intellectual property and access to Chinese markets that have hitherto right. been, been closed off. I do think for the rest of EMs, particularly if the US re-enters some trade treaties and if there's a more sort of balanced, holistic foreign policy that we see that is not coming from tweets, but it sort of reverts a little bit back to kind of classic US foreign right. policy. Right. That is probably quite positive for emerging market equities and emerging market FX as well. Because if these countries, if the emerging markets can manage the pandemic, then I think the election is, is positive. I, I think the question is how broadly will the vaccine be distributed there? But we see it as positive long-term for EM as well. And that and that's a sort of predictable trade um, playing field that you're really talking about there, right? If it's, I mean, it, not, not necessarily even level, but at least predictable. Exactly. Yeah. Let's go back to those intangible assets and weightless firms. Let's say, I love this theme. The, it's, the, the way I sort of uh, paraphrase it, it's the idea that, you know, firms, it's not real assets. You, you look at a balance sheet for what financial analysts used to compare market value to the asset value. And it makes no sense anymore because they don't have, you know, code is, code does not appear as, as, a, as a factory would or a machine would. In, and the brand does not appear as a machine would. So what, so, so what are the trends here as you see them? I know there's a few different strands of this and I think they're all interesting. I mean, there are a hundred different ways to skin the cat, but when you look at sensible ways of what contributes to value in the S&P 500, intangible assets have gone up from something in the 15 to 20% range back in the 70s, early 90, 80s to over, over 85%. And, right. and same is true in the, against the FTSE 100. And by intangible assets, we mean not just technology, uh, but intellectual property, data, brand, digital assets and platforms of various kinds that allow you to kind of build economies of scale and network. And these really are the kind of drivers of a modern economy. I think there are a range of implications, uh, Richard. One, one, one obvious one uh, for us in uh, the debt markets in particular is that many of the credit rating agencies at the moment still, to your point, overvalue physical collateral and haven't quite recognized the fact that the extra flexibility you have from having an intangible heavy model rather than machines and equipment, and the less capital intensity of that model makes it much more likely that uh, you will be nimble and can manage downturns better than companies that were tangible asset heavy. And there is a bit of an opportunity in, in, in the credit ratings that investors uh, can play and that we certainly look at as a, as a factor in our, in our decision making. So how, do I, how, how, do, how would I do that if I want to look at that? What do I, what do I look for? Just, just companies with a high ratio of intangible assets 
Um, just is that is it as simple as that, or how would I? I I think so. so we have a big team of credit analysts at Pigeon Fixed Income uh, who who kind of obviously analyze all aspects of a company. But a starting point would be to see are credit rating agencies over penalizing companies that are intangible asset heavy versus tangible asset heavy. Uh, and, and therefore picking from those areas because there might be higher yield than, than the market is giving them credit for. Right. The, the second piece is if you're not that capital intensive and if public markets are increasingly complex to participate in because of the cost of reporting and the quarterly drumbeat that comes with being a publicly right. listed company, which by the way is particularly hard to deal if you've got... Uh, you know, intangible assets and uh, R&D that you don't want to make publicly available. Uh, you can stay private for much longer. And, and that comes at this unique time where so much capital is flooding private markets that you can have yeah. companies who may never need to IPO even when they achieve uh, great scale. So that is two implications, I think. Uh, one for investors, which is you've got to look at the privates as well. Right. if you want to participate in the intangible asset growth fully. And second is a societal implication that if uh, one way markets feed into kind of democratizing access is through the public markets, then what happens when many of our best companies and highest growing companies remain private forever? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating question. And, you know, it's a question perhaps applicable in a different way to private equity ownership as well. There's a, you know, increasing amounts of money in that too. Let's let's switch a little since we don't have all the time in the world, unfortunately, and talk a, a talk about climate change. Obviously, we have Joe Biden, who at least believes it's a problem, and will push some policies. You know, I think consumers and investors are pushing companies in these directions anyway. But what what do you see as a way ways that investors can think about that? You know, because we we. At breaking views, we try to analyze some of these things and, and look at it as, you know, there has to be a cost to climate change. It's not simply a cost of avoiding it. There has to be an opportunity in avoiding it as well. So how do, how, how do you encourage people to think about that? I mean, it's a great time to ask us this question because you're in the middle of a, a fairly major white paper on the investment implications of climate change that comes out in, in January. But just to uh, give uh, listeners of this podcast a bit of a preview, um, I think with the typical horizon of sophisticated investors being 10 years, and we can talk about whether it should be longer, much of climate change is already baked in and it's sort of happening now. So, so very much even for perhaps the more skeptical investors, it's very much a case of climate change is happening. We need to bake it into our models, our portfolios, our understanding of investment risks and opportunities, not debate whether it should be there, but how do we bake it in? Right. That then leads to the question of does the data exist that lets you understand a yeah. company's true carbon footprint and its real risk, that lets you look at a real estate portfolio of uh, buildings that you might own and understand what's the climate risk and see is it priced in appropriately. There might still be opportunities there where you can make that building resilient and actually take advantage of sort of, you know, a real estate in that area. So there's a whole data question that then kind of gets unlocked then. Um, there is, I think, also... And I think this is the most critical issue of uh, what will be the Minsky moment for climate change factors to be internalized into the pricing of assets. 
Right. It doesn't really right. matter if there's tremendous climate change and volatility if markets aren't pricing it in from a strictly investment angle. But we do believe that that moment will come, what we call the Minsky moment, when markets will internalize it. And, and really investors can play a role, Richard, in ensuring it's not an abrupt transition, but a gradual one where markets start internalizing the facts, just like the EU has done with carbon right. uh, emissions trading. But there's so many other areas where the markets haven't yet priced it in, and yet there's room to do that. And that's really the signal we, we look for. And there is obviously BlackRock is big name that's trying to draw attention to ESG factors, and there are plenty of other funds focusing on that broad, slightly nebulous category. And that does push, and in theory, ought to mean that investors are distinguishing between the two, but it's still not obvious exactly how you quantify that, right? Yeah, we, we just did a survey of the top 100 uh, CIOs globally, and uh, you know a very large percentage are worried about climate change, and only a very small percentage are actually doing anything. And I do think a lot of uh, weight other uh, uh, our industry is placing is just on the risk side, which is obviously extremely important to integrate into your risk models. But there is the opportunity side as well. A, a couple of examples beyond the obvious renewables and green energy trade that exists, we do think that the sunset of fossil fuels will be quite long drawn out if you just look at the raw right. numbers. And therefore, is there, for example, an opportunity to play in the greener end of brown industries as one particular opportunity to play? Is there a way to invest in everything from alternative proteins to vertical farming? Is there a way to kind of look at real estate from a green lens and see which buildings will be more resilient, even if they're in zones that are vulnerable to, to climate right. change? Uh, and that opportunity side, I don't think is being fully exploited. So I, I really do think that's a big piece. And it's more of a silver lining on how we can all participate in helping the world uh, to a, you know, a, a more green future, rather than just looking at it as, as, a, as a tail risk to be worried about. Right, right. And it's, yeah, the, what you say about the, the green end of the brown industry, uh, that's, that seems like, a, you know, it seems to be what I don't know. I mean, BP and Shell, the European energy majors seem to be trying to do that a little bit. The US ones, not so much, but do it for themselves. But obviously there's investment opportunities there too. Now, Timer, we're nearly out of time. Um, I don't know if there's a particular topic you'd like to address that we haven't. I mean, if not, I'd love to talk a bit about cities and real estate, but it, it can be something else. I, I love cities. Uh, I thrive in <laughs> I think human innovation happens in cities. So let's talk about cities. Well, so I was thinking about the Biden-Trump split between cities and rural environments. I was thinking about all this stuff we read, which I don't necessarily believe about COVID and exodus because of COVID and proximity and concerns about that. I think cities obviously are not such fun places when everything is closed, but for whether it's for climate efficiency or just human interactions, business, innovation, as you said. Um, it seems to me that, that they're not doomed. Um, and I wondered from your point of view as a real estate lens, we could look at that through perhaps. And you know, I, when, when this vaccine news came out, SL Green Realty is a classic New York business, uh, real estate investor, the shares just shot up. And you know, that kind of, I'm not saying you should pick names for us, um, but there's those that retail malls, which are obviously in a different situation. Perhaps there's a little, little window on 
on cities through, that we can look at that way. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that big rotation we all saw, right, from uh, work from home companies to return to work uh, companies, uh, and, and I think many benefited. Um, our view is that the demise of cities uh, is greatly exaggerated. And uh, we saw this, uh, you know, in downtown New York City after 9-11, when uh, people thought that would sort of remain a ghost town for much longer than it did. Uh, but the relative attractiveness of different sectors will change because some of those long-term forces that we've been analyzing in, uh, after the great lockdown paper. Um, so first, we do think while you know, many people who lived in London, uh, New York City will stay there, the, the move of baby boomers back into cities, which was gathering pace as everybody was looking for the live work play style, may, may, may soften. And the move of millennials now forming families into suburbia may increase. So I think there is a bit of a relative switch to, to use New York City vocabulary, brownstones from condos, and to suburban living rather than dense urban living on the margin. Right. Uh, and I think that's one trait we look at. I think a second one is that more and more retail storefronts will be converted into last mile delivery centers right. as people have got comfortable not just buying you know, uh, batteries for their, for, for their remote control online, but also to buy vegetables uh, right. online. And therefore that will extend and it'll be an interesting conversion into distribution and logistics facilities. Uh, we do think uh, that uh, logistics and distribution will therefore do very well. The office space I think is an interesting one where on the one hand, the flexible work arrangements might mean that people are working more from home, but it could mean more suburban office space is needed. Mm -hmm. And it could mean that some of the requirements of the post-vaccine world still require some degree of greater open spaces uh, that might mean some investments in the office space. So I think that's that one's uh, the big unknown. And finally, there was a trend in New York City for micro apartments, literally where you had a salt water pool, a big auditorium, lots of shared spaces, but tiny tiny individual spaces. And I think, uh, I think that trend we've seen is, is over. There won't be any more buildings like that. Uh, and, and maybe a final, final point, uh, I do think uh, putting aside uh, the trend uh, with a particular company in this space, um, we will see flexible offices as something people will be interested in, whether because they're still trying to figure out Brexit risk in London or exactly what the future space will look like. I think people will be looking for slightly more flexible leases in the office sector. All right, Tamer, that's fascinating. Um, as a city dweller, thank you very much. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my guest, Tamer Hyatt of Pigeon, and our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, Fusedrum, on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Check us out every day on breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. 
Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.